Syzygy episode 80, Mapping the Unseeable. And welcome back to another edition of the Syzygy podcast. Joining me from her office just across the other side of town, not across the other side of the world, Emily Brunsden. Hi, Emily. How are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good, 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 good. So today we're going to be talking about a huge story which has been all over the papers again recently, which is apparently Einstein was wrong or or not. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, every time, every Plumbing time, Emily. Something comes up where it's, oh, it's a, it's a tweak on the data and there's really interesting, don't get me wrong, fascinating results about the cosmos. But can we please, please, for the love of everything important to you, not call it Einstein being wrong every single time? Is Einstein wrong this time, Emily? Just, just, can we get this out of the way? Uh, in a short word, no. No, right. Einstein's very rarely wrong, probably because... At the very heart of that phrase, Einstein is wrong, is a, is a fundamental problem with the way we understand how these sorts of things work. Bottom line is, a bunch of astronomers have had a look up into the sky and found some really, really interesting data about dark matter and where it is in the universe. And when we compare that to our models, we find some interesting results. And that then gets translated as Einstein was wrong again. So we'll be getting to that in a minute. Emily, Emily's going to take us all through it because she spent hours trawling through this story trying to figure out what on earth is going on. But before we get to that, Emily, um, there's a couple of things in the news that we should probably talk about. Number one, uh, did you catch the um, lunar eclipse last week? Well, no, I was in the wrong um, half you of were the in world, the wrong personally. Half of the world. Did, but did you get a lot of uh, a lot of social media and stuff coming through on your feed, particularly from friends down under, saying, "Oh my God, look at the amazing moon! It's awesome." I did. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely did. Uh, my parents even went out and observed it. They stayed up late, bless them, to go and have a look at the, the It lunar seemed eclipse. like the entire Southern Hemisphere had clear nights and fabulous observing for a beautiful, beautiful red eclipsed moon. And those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, I mean, look, even if we'd been able to, it's been raining here for about 16 years, as far as I can tell. So we wouldn't have seen it anyway. So that's the lunar eclipse last week. And if you got to see it, that's fantastic. But coming up, there is another kind of eclipse. What's coming up, Emily? So we've got a solar eclipse coming up. Um, now, this is um, for us here in the UK, it's a partial solar eclipse. So we only get to see, I guess, a chunk of the sun being um, darkened out by the shadow of the moon. Right. Do you have a sense of how much? Like, is it a tiny sliver? Is it half? Is it most? It's sort of around about a quarter, just over a quarter. Okay, of the sun so that being still should look cool. It won't give us the full darkening of the whole world in a sort of apocalyptic kind of way, but it'll still look cool. Don't look at the solar eclipse, kids. Use a special special uh, piece of equipment in order to do that. But when's that happening? So that's on the 10th of June. Uh, so it's handily sort of mid-morning uh, for us here in uh, the UK. Um, but yeah, so if you are unable to have a device to look at the sun directly with, uh, so, you know, do be safe and, and use a proper solar viewing thing, things like... Um, welding masks just don't protect your eyes enough from the solar radiation so if you've got something that's great if not then um, have a crack at um, grabbing some of the online web feeds there's lots of telescopes around the world that are going to be pointing 
at that yeah, particularly site. if you're in a part of the UK which, as I mentioned, has been basically underwater for the last 16 years because it just keeps on raining. Um, and if the clouds are covering, coming over, then there's going to be someone who's getting a decent view of it who's whacking it up online. So go and have a look at that. Absolutely. And that's two days after the other piece of news, which is that Emily and I are going to be doing a show. It's not a not a live in-person show. We're part of the York Festival of Ideas. So if you go to yorkfestivalideas.com.org.net, just Google search for York Festival of Ideas. We're on there doing a live, uh, live recording of this podcast uh, as part of the festival, and that's going to be loads of fun. It's not quite the getting back in front of a crowd that we like to do when we can, but it feels like a step in the right direction. And that's coming up on the 8th of June. Uh, have you got a time? Do you remember what time it is? It's in the evening for the UK. Yeah. Can't remember exactly what time. I want to say 7.30. I could be wrong. I'll, I'll check I think with it's it to make sure that... 8 o'clock. You've got to be there at 7.30. I've got to be there at 7.30. Right, okay. The rest of you can turn up up at 8. Just go and Google York Festival of Ideas and you can find us there. And because, the the beauty of it is, because it is online, uh, everyone can go. There's no limits on the number of people who can sign up for this one. It's not like we're going to sell out of seats here. So come and join us for that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. Anyway, we should probably get on to what we're actually talking about today, which is that Poor old Albert is being beaten about the head again because obviously he's not the genius that everyone thought he was because clearly he's wrong. Emily, where are we going to start on this one? Why don't we start with what's been measured? Who's been doing what in the astronomy gig this week? Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell you what the headline should be. And let's be fair, many reputable news outlets have picked up the story and run with how the data are actually presented and what the actual scientific achievements are, which are fantastic, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's fantastic to see this kind of science, like getting all over the, the headlines. I think that's really, really cool. This is not, you know, cure for cancer or a new COVID vaccine. This is esoteric cosmology and astronomy, and it's get, getting a lot of attention, which is great. So don't get me wrong. I love that. I just wish they'd stop with the clickbaity headlines. Anyway, what's been done? So the headline should be that we have managed to create the largest and most detailed map of dark matter in our universe. Right. So we're not, not, not in the galaxy, in the universe. This is a very large scale study and it's a big old map of where the dark matter is in the universe at large. And I've got so many questions, but I'm I'm going to hold (laughs) off. I'm going to hang on to them. And I'm going to let you continue on. Who's doing this? How? Well, it turns out there's a load of people behind (laughs) such an enormous piece of research. It shouldn't really surprise you. Not one dude in their backyard. (laughs) No, definitely not. So this is some uh, group called the Dark Energy Survey Collaboration. It's um, a group that's um, in itself is made up of 400 people, 25 institutions, over seven countries. Wow. So this is a big deal. And this that's just the, the direct kind of people involved. Of course, then you rope yeah, yeah. in uh, other people who come in and help out in different aspects as well. So yeah, it's it's a big it's a big collaboration, and the reason why they got together was um, to say, hang on, we, we've got all these wonderful cosmological models. We're making amazing simulations on the biggest supercomputers in the world uh, to do this um, great science. But how about we just go out there and observe and make a map of where all the dark energy is? Well, that's a good. Sorry, dark, dark matter is. Let's not go down that dark yeah, energy dark road. Energy. Just, you know. Leave that out. So that sounds like a good idea, right? 
you got all your models. We we think we know what's going on. But hey, says uh, you know, 400 plus astronomers, why don't we go and measure this stuff and find out where it is and then presumably do a direct comparison? You've got a model that says it should look like this and you've got observations that say, well, it does look like this and how well do they overlap? I'm guessing that's the point. Absolutely. Cool. Then it sounds like it, that should be fairly straightforward. Yeah, how'd that go? Well, the only problem is that dark matter is actually something that you can't see. Ah, right. It's in the name, isn't it? Dark matter. Yeah, that was one of my questions, right? If you're going to make a map of where all the dark matter is in the universe, seems to me you've got a fundamental problem just straight out of the gate, Emily, which is if you can't see it, how can you map it? Right? <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't make any plausible sense. So clearly I'm missing something. What is it? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason that we know that dark matter exists is because it has uh, mass and therefore it has gravitational influence on stuff around it, stuff that we can see. Right. Um, so for many, many years, we've been able to measure the presence of dark matter because it causes galaxies, including our own Milky Way galaxy, to spin faster than they should. Right. right. I mean, that's where all of this started, right? The whole notion of there being a need for dark matter in the universe came from observations of the, the rotation of galaxies and saying, well, hang on, if you add up all the stuff we can see and figure out how the galaxy should be behaving, it doesn't. It's, it's just You can't explain it with the stuff that we can see, so there must be stuff that we can't see, hence dark matter. And so just because you can't see it doesn't mean you can't see its effect uh, and its effect through gravity. So that's what they're mapping. Exactly, yeah. And another very classic way that we've measured dark matter in the past has been when you take enormous clusters of galaxies. And these big clusters of galaxies have dark matter kind of lurking around in the spaces between the galaxies. Um, and then if you take the light that's coming from uh, objects, say, even more distant galaxies that are behind these clusters, then that light on its journey towards us gets bent by the matter the dark matter that's in between all the other galaxies in these clusters and we get all these weird optical effects so galaxies appear to sort of smear out to form arcs and parts of rings and all this amazing sort of stuff that we call lensing where the matter is just basically changing the path of the photons on their way to us. So how are they like I can understand how you could do that I could understand how you could look at an individual galaxy and say well it's doing this therefore it must have this amount of mass in total but we can only see this much, so do a subtraction, and this is how much dark matter there is. And I can see how you could sort of look at a particular, you know, area of the sky and say, oh, look, I can see some gravitational lensing type weird bending effects there, so there must be dark matter in the way. What are they doing to actually make this map? Like, what? how are they figuring out how much dark matter there is across the universe in different places? So they're taking exactly that same principle of that the um, dark matter is causing light to bend. So that example that I gave you we call strong lensing. It's when you get really, really strong, big clumps of dark matter. They're called quite dramatic effects. Um, that, but what we're doing for the uh, dark energy survey collaboration we're doing, we're looking at what we call weak lensing, which is when it's the same effect, except it's just happening to every single galaxy that you observe in the night sky. So every single, um, you look up, you make a, a picture of a particular galaxy. If there's any dark matter in between us and that galaxy, it's going to cause a really slight distortion in the shape 
um, of that image of that galaxy. Oh, right. So they're able to actually measure, like the, the sort of effects that you see for gravitational lensing are like really quite weird and they're, and they're beautiful, but it's like, you know, a, a bizarre, literally a lens sitting between us and, and the thing further off through the universe. And it sort of just bends and stretches it out across the, across the field of view. And it, and it looks amazing and really quite weird. But this is much more subtle. And you can look at what presumably any galaxy and and figure out from from very subtle effects like that how much dark matter there is between us and them is that the idea that's exactly the idea but if you want to do it on sort of the kind of scale where you want to create a map of a substantially sized map of where all the um, dark matter is in the galaxy or sorry in the universe then you've got to do this um, like times well in this case it's times about a hundred million so they've got 100 million galaxies that they've managed to measure Holy for this cow. survey. Seriously. And so they're looking at 100 million different galaxies and they're figuring out how much dark matter there is between us and them for each of those. And so from that, putting together all of those bits of data to say, all right, well, this, so this must be where the dark matter is across the universe. And you can sort of lay it all out and map it out that way. That's very clever. It's such a phenomenal achievement, just going from this idea of let's just make a map and just creating the map in its own right. So this, um, the map was done um, from observations on a telescope in Chile. It's called the Victor M. Blanco Telescope. It's a four-metre telescope, so a pretty um, moderately sized telescope in Cerro Tololo Observatory. So just the one telescope? Just the one telescope, yeah. 100, 100 million galaxies. So the it's whole... busy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's pretty much dedicated to this project. They've been working um, for six years, so between 2013 and 2019. And what this result that's just come out is, is the result of the three years, first three years of that data right. set. And it's taken a huge amount of effort just to get to the point of being able to construct this map because, I mean, the numbers are huge. I mean, we're talking about something like 5,000 square degrees of sky, which is something like... Um, one eighth of the entire night sky, and you know, including both hemispheres, which you can't see from a single telescope. Yeah, I mean that's a bit difficult. You're you're only ever pointing in one particular direction, so that's that's difficult. And so even with the rotation of the Earth, there's only so much of the sky that you can see. Um, and I remember seeing from one of the images attached to, to the story that you sent me through about this one, Emily, um, that you kind of got to look away from the plane of the Milky Way galaxy as well. Exactly. You can't yep. look through our own galaxy because there's just too much stuff in the way. So you, you're limited to the part of the sky which hasn't got us in it. Exactly. Yeah. So you can only sort of see parts. Um, but that storm, you know, eighth of the sky is huge. It's massive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, space is big, right? So, <laughs> you know, that's, that still well. <laughs> leaves you a lot of galaxies that you can choose from. Uh, and turns out, yeah, you count them up as, what, 100 million or so that you said they've done? 100 million, yep. So they took um, data over a total of 758 nights. This is a lot of observing time, right? Yeah, and that's um, still a lot of galaxies a night. Like, they've been super busy. And they've been working with one of the best astronomical cameras um, basically in the field, which is a 570 megapixel camera. Wow, jeez. That's just, I mean, there's some very cool tools out there being used for this stuff. 
Exactly. So as an astronomer, I can appreciate just how much data processing there is just to get those images off the camera into some sort of sensible format, let alone do things like identify all your galaxies, you know, 100 million of them, measure all your galaxies, and then put them, construct that back into some kind of um, two-dimensional map. I mean, it's it's totally extraordinary the amount of work that goes into just that kind of process. You said that you can look at these galaxies and we're talking very subtle distortions from the, the dark matter between us and them, right? So, you know, in my mind's eye, I have, you know, your classic picture, your, your beautiful astronomical pictures of a lovely big pinwheel galaxy or something like that and being able to see subtle, weird distortions and stuff. But I, I, don't, I don't think that's what you're talking about. So what, what exactly is it that they are measuring with these galaxies and what are we like what are the distortions that we're seeing is it is it in i don't know is it in the spectra that we're getting from the galaxies is it like what what are they seeing it's not in the spectra it's from the images the photometric images themselves um and i, I from my understanding it's mostly to do with the brightnesses and where you find the brightnesses so if you expect this the a typical galaxy to be bright in the center and then to fade away then if you get a sort of sharper brightening in one half of the galaxy or something like that then that tells you right it's it's what i just talked myself out of which is i can't i can't imagine that they're looking at all of these images of these galaxies and going that's galaxy shaped except it's got a weird bulge over here it shouldn't look like that therefore like i'd i'd imagine it couldn't possibly be that because you've got 100 million of them so how could you but apparently that is they really are looking for effectively visual distortions Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And well, let's. I mean, let's be honest here. No, no one person, no horrible um, sort of PhD supervisor sat their student down and said, <laughs> "Right, here we have 100 million galaxies. I want you to get through these by Start the end at of the week." Start number one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, get yourself you, some coffee. You're going to need it. When yeah. you got big data, you have to use really clever tools. Yeah, so yeah. that's uh, not even a bunch of honors students. That's you need computers for this one, presumably. Absolutely, and you yeah. need the, the sharpest computers. So this is all done using artificial intelligence, right? Uh, using machine learning. Yep, yep. So this is computers who know, in a sense of of artificial intelligence, they know what galaxies look like, and so you know they know it when they see it, and they know when they see something's wrong, and so they're just sifting through at supercomputer speed looking for that one's weird that one's weird that one's weird in this way and they're able to extract from that not just a list of weird galaxies but numbers that say this is how much dark matter there is that's awesome it's it's really really brilliant um so i think they this project did release some data after the first year so a few years ago they released just year one data and it's phenomenal to look at basically every process that they have from acquisition of that image down to producing the map. They've had to build sort of new algorithms, new processes, new statistics of ways of analysing the data, even in just from the year one release to the year three release. It's just phenomenal the amount of work that goes into producing something like this. God, it's just... Just the, the the scale of it is off the charts, isn't it? It really is quite amazing. And no wonder it takes such a big team to to figure this stuff out. And this is, well, we've talked about this before. The, the thing that amazes me about modern science in general and modern astronomy in the, in the specific case here is how many different skill sets are required to come up with a result like this. I mean, you've got everything from 
how do we build and use some of the best astronomical imaging devices, telescopes and cameras that we can get our hands on, through to, I've got a program, I've got to build and program a supercomputer to sift through this sheer amount of data and teach it how to do that itself. Like so many different crazy skills involved in modern science. Um, there's, there's something for everybody. It's great. It is really brilliant. Um, and it's, you know, and it pays off because they've, they've managed to put this, um, this map together. So this is, I guess, the preliminary results or the first results coming from the, the year three point. There are 30 papers that are you know, journal papers coming out um, for this particular point. Um, I think 29 of them are already published. I didn't read all of them. I have to confess. Come on, <laughs> Emily. All of them. What are you doing with your I, time? I read a few of them, but um, you know, it's just, it is just enormous amounts of, of stuff. Because, and then you think, not have you just created this map of where all the dark matter is, but because you're looking at galaxies which are at different distances from us, yeah. which we measure using the redshift parameter, or basically how fast they're moving away from us due to cosmic expansion, so you get another piece of information that you can fold into this mix, which is actually time. Right. So you can say things not only about how the dark matter distribution looks in our local part of the universe, therefore basically now, but you can say things about what the distribution looked like in the past because you're looking at further distances. Right. Further and further away is further and further back in time. Just blows yeah. your mind, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although then you start to think about, yeah, but so but how do you how do you then figure out where all the dark matter is now? Do you need to know where all the dark matter is now if you can only see but you can only see a bit of where it is now and the rest of it is not now and some of it's quite a lot not now. You know, like some of it's really <laughs> really not now in a very big way. I don't I can't wrap my head around that one Emily, but then the universe is weird like that. Looking just up into the sky is effectively time travel. So, we have this amazing amount of data, huge number of people have worked really really hard. And we have a map. So what does it look like? What is, what is the map? Well, you've got a picture of it in front of you. Why don't you describe to me what you think it looks like? <sighs> All right. Make me do the work. You're much better at this than I am. Chris. Well, I mean, what I'm looking at looks like purple clouds, right? This is a picture which is from, uh, so I'm looking at the article in the BBC News, but I'm sure this, this same picture, because it's from the Dark Energy Collaboration, is all over the, the, the media around this story. And I'm looking at an image which it really does look like, I don't know, it looks like sort of diffuse clouds. There's a there's a sort of some dark bits and some very bright sort of pinky purple bits. And the rest is sort of cloudy, diffuse out. There is structure here, but it, it looks fairly random. So there are concentrated bits of, of bright stuff, which I'm assuming is that's where the dark matter is. And there are, although maybe not, maybe the dark bits are where the dark matter is. Um, no, but no, there's, you're quite there's contrast right, yeah. and different things here. So when I look at this, I see what looks to me like a fairly random blobby universe of dark matter, which is why I haven't got my name on any of the papers. So tell me what I'm looking at here. I think actually fairly random blobby universe of dark matter is, is not a bad description as far as they go. That's it. I'm publishing that one. <laughs> so absolutely. Yeah, the bright um, parts of this uh, picture or this map are the densest 
um, concentrations of dark matter. Right. So the brighter the the, the purpley color going to yellow. Also, by the way, why are all dark matter maps purple? I, I, that's I don't a, know. Someone made that choice, right? Yeah, they always seem to be. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I like it. It's a nice color scheme, but, you know, yeah. weird. So someone decision decided that at some point. Anyway, so you have these bright bits, and then you've got these voids, which is where the black bits are, where there's just no dark matter. And although we sort of see this as kind of a, um, I guess, a cloudy sort of structure, if you were to put this into a three-dimensional uh, image, then you would see it's much more like a web. Um, and we call this the cosmic web, right? Right. Um, and on this sort of scale, on the, this um, sort of map sort of scale, it's, it's well, you've got these clusters of bright dark matter, and we call them halos because in the centre of those sort of spherical or extended blobby sort of um, smudgy clusters is where you're going to find the ordinary matter. So that's where you find galaxies, um, and that's where you find, of course, in the galaxies, the stars and the planets and all that kind of and, and, and ordinary us, mass people stuff. like us, right? Yeah. And is that is that because like the the bright bits on these maps, the the blobby bits, um, the high concentration of dark matter, and is, that's it's because of that that that's where we find the ordinary matter, or is it that we find the dark matter where we? Where we like, which which one follows which? <laughs> I think we generally do we find the ordinary yeah. matter because we've got the dark matter, or do we have the dark matter because we've got the ordinary matter, or is it just a hand in hand? How does it work? The way we generally understand the universe is that the dark matter formed the structure, which then the ordinary matter sort of collapsed onto. Right. Okay. So, so they are they are intrinsically linked. Right. So what we're seeing here then is, in a in a kind of very real sense the structure of the large scale universe right exactly it's, yeah. this is this is where all the stuff is in the universe in which case when you look at that again what i originally described as sort of being you know a, a purpley map with some blobby bits and some some dark voids like that's really interesting why why do we have these really concentrated bits and then why do we have these great voids with nothing in them and what's it like in there <laughs> It's got to be a really lonely part of the universe to be stuck in one of those. Exactly. So that's very. I mean, it's not. It's not completely random, is it? It's not just this. This, you know, wash of you know spread out purpley dark matter. There's real structure here, and it's it's strung out in these, in on this web, as you said, this cosmic web, which is very cool. Yeah, and although we're seeing all this lovely sort of structure um, in these kind of images, what we do have to remember, though, is that actually overall things like the clustering of the dark matter, it's actually reasonably smooth. I mean, it could be a lot more clumpy than right. than this. It's it's on the biggest scales relatively smooth, relatively even. We get these little kind of um, patches of, of high density, but over the very largest scales. And it, it, is, it is actually remarkably smooth. So we have a map. Uh, we have on a, on a very large scale. It's reasonably smooth, but it has this structure. We can see the cosmic web. And that is fabulous. But can I now go to the question of, okay, so so... So what? You know, you've got to do something with this and you've actually got to compare it to what we thought this would look like. So I'm guessing that this is fairly close to what we expected. But from all the stories in the news, there's obviously some discrepancy. So, Emily, can you tell me a little bit about the other side of this story, which is what did we think this was going to look like? Yeah, so we've done these kind of surveys on smaller 
um, scales before and there have been kind of hints that the same kind of result that um, the dark energy survey that um, collaboration managed to get through. The reason why they're called the dark energy survey by the way instead of the dark matter survey is because these actually these things are all intertwined so when you understand the full composite structure of the universe so we have kind of a hundred percent universe then if we know that 70% of that universe is in the form of dark energy, 73 roughly, 23% maybe also is in the form of dark matter, uh, and you know the, the less than kind of 5%, 6% level is, is all the other stuff, most of which is hydrogen and helium anyway, not even yeah. kind of yeah. interesting things like stars and uh, people. Like when you, when that, the reason why they call the dark energy survey is you want to understand the history and the evolution of the universe, you've got to understand all of the components, which, you know, dark matter is clearly a really important contributor to. So it's, um, it's all kind of part of the same thing. So is this, is this kind of a, <laughs> this is a stepping stone to what they actually really want to get at? Like, okay, all right, all right, we have to understand the dark matter first. Can we get that out of the way and then we'll get onto the dark energy? Is this, is, is this sort of step one for them? Um, it's all part of the same thing. So what right. we're trying to do is trying to construct a model for the universe. And the model for the universe says we had Big Bang. That's got its own sort of models. But then you sort of play the universe forward and you, you see what happens. And what, what is the model that describes the physics of how that universe or our universe evolves from day one? And the I guess the standard model, we talked about the standard model of particle physics when we talked about muons. Yeah. There's a standard cosmological model as well. And the standard cosmological model, which is called Lambda CDM, um, and this is where the Einstein sort of bit comes in. Right. Um, the lambda stands for uh, dark energy. So now Einstein didn't think there was such a thing as dark energy. He just shoved this lambda parameter into his equations, hoping it would sort of solve some problems with general relativity and the structure of the universe. Turns out it did. Yeah, I mean, he came up with the idea in order to get himself out of a bind. That actually, it turned out no, that that's that's not a bind, Einstein. That's uh, that's real. That's that's a real thing of the universe. Like the theory needs the 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 thing that he stuck in there as a as a bit of a fudge in order for it to be basically consistent. If you if you take it out, it's it's it just doesn't doesn't um doesn't allow for all of the possible solutions to the to the equations. And so he put it in thinking, well I, I kinda need this in order to make that problem go away. He's like, no, Albert, you're putting it in there because that's how the universe actually works is the is the way it turned out. <laughs> exactly. So even that, like the whole dark energy thing, is pure Einstein. Like he's not wrong about that. He's actually really right and vindicated. He just didn't think it was true at the time. <laughs> so, Which is all very ironic that we're saying that he's wrong now. But yeah, we'll come exactly. back to that. Exactly. We'll come back to that. <laughs> uh, so the lambda CDM, the lambda stands for the dark energy parameter and uh, CDM stands for cold dark matter. So these okay. are kind of the way you've, you've built up your universe with some dark energy, some cold dark matter and uh, bits of other stuff. Right. See, the thing I like about this, just parenthetically, is that the standard model of particle physics is all the stuff that we really do get. And then, as you pointed out in your long list of problems, we kind of just try to ignore for as long as possible all the things that is broken about the standard model of particle physics. Your standard model of cosmology, right up front, names the two things we don't understand dark energy and dark matter you know like that's our model but we don't but, understand them but we can model them Is really well yeah. <laughs> and I mean, don't get us wrong it's not like we don't know anything about it we just don't know what it is. I love it. 
Uh, yeah, and we can model them very well. And they do explain the universe around us really, really well from the fact that the universe is expanding, the structures that we see, the way that dark matter behaves, all these kind of tests that we throw at the Lambda CDM. It's it's passing, right? Sure, so this is, sure. this is good. Um, now, if I'm going to share my screen with you, is this going to work? Uh, yes, I can see that. Can you see a funny plot? I can. So this is now where all the the, the models and the map start to compare. Right. And this plot is, is it's quite a dense plot. So we'll, um, we'll kind of break it down. But this is kind of the core of interest here. For listeners at home, have a look at your device. If you've got the kind of device that can show images while you're watching a podcast, right? We've got some chapter art on here, which is showing this graph right now, this plot right now. So you can follow along at home. Mm -hmm. And if you're out having a nice stroll in the Hawardian Hills or something lovely like that, which is where <laughs> I sometimes listen to podcasts. That's quite specific, but there we go. Yes. Um, Hello to everyone out there on the Hawardian Hills. Then what you might want to try and imagine in your mind is that we've got a plot where we're plotting um, on the uh, y-axis. What we're actually plotting here is the clumpiness of the dark matter in the universe the clumpiness of of matter really okay so clumpiness so, up and down yep yep and then on the um on the x-axis we're plotting the amount of matter that's in the universe okay clumpiness versus amount yep and actually it doesn't really matter what those two things are the point is that we've got different ways of measuring these things using different techniques and we're trying to make sure these things are consistent because if they're all consistent our model is great and we're away laughing right the understanding of the universe yeah okay so with any luck the different ways that we can measure these these specific parameters of the universe will all line up happily and we'll go yep we're on the right track so describe to me what i'm looking at in this plot then so our gold standard that we've got the measurements from um, and already are the green circles. So we've got some green circles, two green circles, kind of in the middle. And this is where um, the Planck uh, cosmic microwave background has said that these parameters are from our measurements. Right. And this Planck, that's your, that's your satellite, that's your orbiting, orbiting telescopey thing, isn't it? Yep, Planck was a um, space telescope that was observing the cosmic microwave background, which we've talked about before, but uh, is the afterglow of the Big Bang, basically. Right. Uh, so we get to see that it's, it's a kind of a snapshot in the history of the universe at around 350,000 years after the Big Bang. Right. And you said that's the gold standard. So we're really, really ha happy with the Planck measurements there, the Planck CMB measurements. We're pretty sure that those are good. Exactly. Right. Well, at least they, they were definitely good at 350,000 years after the Big Bang. Right. Clearly, we've fast-forwarded a few, well, about 13 <laughs> point something billion years since then, which you can maybe dispute a little bit about where we are now. But, I mean, that's... Put a yeah. tack in that one and pin it to the walls. Yep. Yeah. But, okay, so that's, that's our measurement that we had about the, 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 this Lambda CDM model of the universe. These are the values that we get from Planck. And now the grey circles, which have a black line around them, they are the new measurements that we have from this map of the distribution of dark matter. Okay, so that's the new stuff. That's this, this new map, and they are highlighted on this plot as the, as the dark, dark blob. Hmm. Um, and so when I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, well, they, they overlap somewhat, but it's not great. Yeah, so the outer circle of the green lines, which are the Planck lines, sort of go through all a good section of the um, new observation lines. The two inner circles kind of touch, which are mm -hmm. kind of, you know, the most certain measurements, but they don't quite 
totally overlap. Sure. Okay. Or at least they do in the they do in the mass. So on the sides of this plot, you see these kind of peaks, and you can see that say if you look at the very top of the plot, there's a green peak that overlaps with a black peak that says that those two are the same. Fine, yep. they, so they both agree. agree. Yeah. Yeah. On the side plot, you see that the green peak and the black peak are a little bit separated. Yeah, I mean the, we're we're sort of looking at this plot and we're seeing different blobs, different blobby shapes, and you know in two dimensions they don't agree brilliantly but they sort of overlap in one direction not so much in the other direction so okay so so what does that mean then what's that trying to tell us so it tells us um that broadly the two agree mm -hmm. but there is and this is where the the headlines are coming from there is some possibility that they may not quite agree perfectly Right. And where they're not agreeing is sort of in the clumpiness side of things that that the Planck data says, well, it should be this clumpy. And the new map data is saying, oh, it's not that clumpy. It's this kind of clumpy. And is that where this discrepancy in the headlines is coming up? Exactly. Yeah. So okay. we're sort of saying that the new measurements are suggesting that maybe we're measuring things to be a bit more smooth and more spread out by maybe on the order of a couple of percent. Okay. Now, a couple of percent doesn't sound like much, except you can hide an enormous amount of really important physics or science in you know, a fraction of a percent, let alone a couple of percent. So if this were true, then a couple of percent discrepancy could be a really, really big deal to our understanding of the, the physics of the universe, right? That that could really, really make a huge difference if this turns out to be true. Yeah, and we have ways of quantifying that even better, right? Mm -hmm. We have different statistical tests. I think we've mentioned before sigma tests. Yeah. We, we, we require, uh, if, for example, when we measured the Higgs boson, we required there to be um, a five sigma um, sort of probability that, that we what we were measuring was actually exactly what we thought it was. Yeah, five standard deviations away from these things line up perfectly and agree. No, they're actually different. Well, how different are they? Are they are they five standard deviations away from the mean of, of where we would expect them to overlap? Because if they're not five standard deviations away, we're not going to take that as a real result. And five standard deviations, like that's that's getting up into the one in a million chance or or less of that being just a random haphazard coincidence that you got this result. It's in other words. That's your gold standard of, that's a real finding. The Higgs boson is real. Um, this doesn't look like a five sigma result to me. It's not. It's sitting, depending on how you want to measure it, it's sitting maybe around the two sigma. Yeah. See, and this is where my problem with the headlines comes in. That if you're going to start saying Albert was wrong, I think, personally, it's just me, it's opinion. What do I know? My opinion is you want something better than a two sigma result? Two sigma results happen all the time. It's just a random roll of the dice. I mean, it's, you know, can you put much faith in a two sigma result in astronomy, Emily? Well, exactly. And I think the paper is, is really um, very clear in saying that these models agree to within the statistical tests that we can possibly do. And indeed, the press release that comes from this team is actually doesn't mention this discrepancy <laughs> really at all, which is, 
Yeah, which has sort of sent me around in a few sort of circles trying to figure out where all this uh, information was coming from. Yes. Hang on, who exactly is disagreeing with who here? Everyone seems to be in full agreement. Oh, right. I mean, I, if I look at some of the articles that, that I came across, there were a few sort of quotes and statements that they managed to get out of people, either involved with the project or not. You know, the, a journalist will go and ring up their local friendly astronomer or cosmologist and say, hey, what do you think about this? And some of the quotes are along the lines of, well, I mean, if this turns out to be a real discrepancy, then it basically turns everything that we know about the universe on its head. It's like, well, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got a long way to go before we get to that stage. So there's nothing wrong with the statement. It's true. There's just a really big if sitting in the <laughs> middle there, which as far as I can tell from my reading and from your reading of this, like there's nothing in this result that says we need to throw out what we know about Einsteinian physics in cosmology. It just doesn't. No, but I do understand it can be a bit disappointing, maybe isn't the right word, but a bit frustrating perhaps even if you are working on this and I mean, we need we need results to be consistent. If you measure the same thing in two different ways, then it needs to give you the same answer, right? Yeah, um, ideally. Um, so, I guess in its ways, it's when you do the biggest, baddest, amazing, most amazing dark matter map that you could possibly dream of doing, and it still comes up with a, it kind of agrees, but maybe not quite. <laughs> That, I mean, so that I is a bit. What do we have to do here? What are we going to do? We, we we threw every. We did a hundred million galaxies, people. What do you want from us? Blood? Like we did our best. But doesn't this like it reminds me so much of the particle physics thing that we talked about only a few weeks ago, right? Where there was this huge uh, media interest in new physics, new physics, new physics. And it's almost sort of justifying the huge amount of effort that that physicists, both theoretical and experimental at the, at the massive Large Hadron Collider type organizations, have been throwing at these problems of trying to understand the universe. Actually, the punchline, I suspect, is going to be, yeah, but if you do your calculations properly, and, you know, at the end of our podcast on this, we talked about the, the lattice um, simulations, the computer simulations of the particle physics, which showed that maybe the theoretical result actually did come somewhat more towards where the experimental, experimental result was, and the discrepancy kind of goes away at that point. In other words, there was something wrong with the way we were trying to calculate. It's really hard. That's what happens the majority of the time when you've got a discrepancy between theory and experiment. It's not new physics. It's not throwing out the old. It's adjusting the way we're comparing them and doing our calculations or our measurements and things come back into line. So, yeah, I I guess I, I understand what you're saying, that it must be very frustrating to be on either side of this. You're either wanting these two blobs on this diagram to completely overlap and, yep, fantastic, we know we're doing the right thing, or you want them to be so separate that that's a sign that you're in a job for the rest of your life explaining that discrepancy. And instead, you've got this overlapping but not enough kind of result. Yeah, I could see how that would be a bit annoying. Exactly. And it's sort of, it's one of these things where there's, 
is not obviously a thing where, oh, we just need to build a bigger particle accelerator and we'll solve <laughs> this. We just need to build a bigger telescope and we can make more measurements. I mean, that is already underway, obviously. We've got three, these are just the first three years of the survey. We've got another three years of data that have already been collected that need analyzing. So that's going to be obviously a big job for these cosmologists over the next few years. And I guess the same thing is true with the theories um, and indeed the Planck uh, models as well. You know, everyone's done that utmost and with, there's been so much effort put into um, characterizing the tiniest little details that might influence the way that these uh, measurements are put together and I guess you get to the end of your long list of things that might be causing slight irregularities or ways that you can improve your measurements you get to the end of that list and you think huh you know, <laughs> what do we do now go back to the beginning and start again I don't know I mean Ultimately, right, the universe is the final arbiter of this. You can only compare what you can see to what you can calculate. And that, to me, there's a, there's a lovely lesson here in humility with both the particle physics one and with this one, which is we are throwing everything we've got at this and the universe is saying, well, yeah, it's a bit more subtle than that. Go back and try again. And, you know, we are really, really clever hominids. There's no question that as far as the broader ape family goes, we're doing pretty well on the intellectual front, right? We're good, but this is a lovely little sign. And so was the, so was the, um, the muon thing that you got to try a bit harder. Come on, we're not going to give up these these universal secrets quite so easily. And I think the other thing that's really come to light, but in both these studies as well, I haven't mentioned it for this one, but there's a lot of um, removal of human bias that's starting to come into these sort of big projects in science and that's a very very good thing. Did these guys do the result reveal party? They didn't quite do the result reveal oh. party as far as I can tell but certainly they uh, took measures to, to sort of take away some of the key elements of the data when they were working with it such that they couldn't introduce any human bias into the way that they looked at the results and processed the results. That's so really there were, there were multiple steps uh, along the way to try and make sure that there was no bias included. See, I think this is a really interesting trend in, in modern science. And I mean, it, you know, I'm only just hearing of it. It's probably been around for years. But the, the notion of, of actively removing the, the human bias element by physically separating the people from, you know, the, the potentially biasing results along the way. I, I just think that's so cool. I think there's a lot of philosophy of science research to be done on this one. And I'm guessing there's also probably going to be a couple of cases where people have to turn around and go, you know, that thing that we did where we thought we were removing all the bias? Turns out we weren't. And there's some really interesting lessons to be learned. I think it's great. I love it. It's really good. We've come a long way since Millikan and the oil drop experiment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've come a long way from people just making up their own minds about what is and isn't an appropriate bit of data. I'll keep that one. I'll throw that one out. No, no, no. You don't even get to see the actual data. You get to work on this chunk over here and we'll tell you whether or not you've done something appropriate at the end. I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> well, so we, we've got ourselves into this position, Emily, where here towards the end of the podcast, we've, 
we've audaciously critiqued this massive, massive bit of research and come to the conclusion that, oh, look, I don't know. I don't know that there's anything in this, frankly. So look, listener at home, if you're actually from this team of researchers and you're sitting there just getting absolutely furious as you're walking across the Hawajan hills and um, and listening to the podcast and you want to, you know, tell give us what for, then... You know, you can always get in touch. But we seem to be in this position, Emily, where it kind of feels like we need more data. You know, this is this discrepancy is either going to be there or it's going to go away. So where does it go from here? What happens next in this research? Well, we do need to be a bit careful. I mean, it's very easy to finish at the end of every uh, research paper to say, but we need more data. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that might secure your funding in the short term, but... It's... Yeah, it becomes a bit transparent after a while, though. So, yeah, you said that last time. Indeed, yeah. So we need to think cleverly about this. Um, I mean, clearly, as I mentioned, there's another three years of data to come. So yep. now I wouldn't. I don't think there's any more sky. I think it's mostly refinement and future for a more observations so might get a little bit more sky but right. but it's not going to be another 100 million galaxies no not as far no. as i understand so you know there's going to be some new um ways of looking at that data ways of trying to pull out any systematics that are causing this discrepancy maybe from the observational side but i do think there's also going to be some renewed effort to look at go back and look at Planck. We have another crack at that try and remove some of uh, the systematics that might still be present in those data as well. But in some ways, I sort of think, well, maybe we just need some more tests. So on that plot, there were actually some other colors uh, of the, on there. Going back into the into the wonkiness of the plot again. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some more circles on that plot, which do give us some more information. So we do have information from things like redshift surveys, from uh, local observations of things like supernovae in the uh, local part of our universe. And... That's kind of agreeing with both at the moment. <laughs> um, so there is opportunity there. Not helping there. much. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not, well it's, it's, I mean, it's helpful that it's kind of close-ish, but it's, it's not solving the problem. So maybe there's refinements and more studies to be done in that area. And I might be being really optimistic here, but maybe we just need to dream up a new measurement. <laughs> I mean, maybe we need to figure out what this dark matter stuff is to begin with, and then maybe reckon? we can make some progress. <laughs> like, I just love the idea that this is a huge story and it's a massive bit of research in order to map out the stuff that we still don't know what it is yet. I mean, I know that's really important and that's a massive, big step along the way to understanding all of this stuff. I'm not putting it down. It just makes me laugh that modern science is at this stage of... Well, we know it's out there and we can map it. We can have really big studies and arguments about what the map means and how it lines up against other maps, but we still don't know what it is yet. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe when we find out what it is, that'll help us to figure out this plot. So I think basically if you're out there cracking away at, uh, at dark matter, hey, even if you're out there sort of trying to figure out dark energy, uh, I mean, props to you. You're doing a fantastic job, but can you just kind of get a wriggle on? Because we'd really like to sort this out now, please. Right, well, having summarily pulled apart uh, one of the most important and major 
publications in astronomy and cosmology for the year. Emily, I don't know. I feel pretty good about myself right now. Um, This has been a fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for bringing this one to my attention. Um, Emily, if anyone is out there listening and they're thinking to themselves, no, Chris just didn't get that. I need to put him straight on a whole bunch of stuff. If they wanted to get in touch with us, how would they do that? Well, you can at us. We are at SyzygyPod. So Don't at S Y Z Y G Y P O D. That's right. So if you're not an atter, which is, I guess, a Twitter thing, that's I've just decided that atting is a word. I'm going to go with that. I look, go with yeah. it. I think run with it. Um, if you're not an atter, then uh, if you're on Facebook and you throw in Syzygy Podcast into the search bar, then you'll find us as well. On the Instagrams, which I think is something to do with pictures. I'm getting I'm getting but more information every so day. That's so old school. It used to be something about pictures, and now it seems to be basically everything, as far as I can tell. But sure, let's say that. On the Instagrams, we are also the Syzygy Pod. Yes. Do we, do we have a website? It is. Uh, Syzygy.fm. And you can find all the amazing episodes that we have done. You can find all the nice things that Chris has written up about each of the episodes, including some nice links and some plots. If you really want to go and study the chart that we've been talking about today and see if you agree whether or not they <laughs> two measures in the theory agree. Way in. Why not? We have. Yeah. yeah. You can find a, all Have that. a stare at it. Um, it'll either make you incredibly happy or incredibly frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take no responsibility for either. Um, oh dear. And listen, if you want to... If you want to support us on this show, this silly thing that we do every every once in a while, then there's a bunch of different ways that you can do that. First of all, you can just tell everyone you know that there's this show with these two people who prattle on about astronomy and cosmology, and you really should listen to it. Spread the word. Share the link. Uh, you can leave us a review. Uh, give us some stars and a, and a couple of words on your podcast client of choice, and that helps us to rise up through the noise and helps other people out there in podcast land find where we are. And if you want to become a financial supporter of the show, then you can join our fabulous patrons over at patreon.com slash syzygypod and for a dollar a pound a month or so, you can um, help the electrons flow through our website and help us to do the things we love to do when the world is open up and coronavirus free like festivals and gatherings and live shows looking forward to doing a bunch of those again there's one last thing i want to mention which is our wonderful friend chris baker who is the uh, the fabulous astrophotographer behind the website galaxyonglass.com uh chris has been a friend of the show for a while and a supporter of the show and he has a newsletter that he sends out once a month or so with bunch of news and links and interesting things from the world of astronomy and astrophotography and he's asked us to be a part of that he's um he's putting a little feature about the podcast and a, a little bit of a write-up of some of his favorite shows from our catalog as well as our uh, our latest show whenever we put one out so if you want to get over there to galaxyonglass.com this is not a sponsorship so much as just a sort of friend of the show plug so thanks chris for for everything you do go and check out his stuff emily you've seen some of his stuff in person. In fact, I think the department, the physics department at York, has some of his stuff up on the walls, don't they? It is glorious. Actually, I even have one at home. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. I'm so jealous. His, his art. Well, I say art. It's, it's this beautiful... The way that the universe is beautiful and he just captures it straight away as an image from a telescope, sticks it on a piece of glass. And it's not, it's not tampered with. It's not kind of made it too obtusely not astronomical it's just a glorious 
telescope picture of a particular night sky object. Some of my favourites are in the catalogue too, and it just makes me really happy seeing them. It is gorgeous. I'm looking at the website now, and there's this, this scrolling set of images of just the, basically the raw images, but also the artwork. He's got, you know, framed images, backlit images, so you've got light coming through and just really making them shine. Do yourself a favour, even if you don't intend to buy one of these things, just go and look at the website. It's gorgeous stuff. So, galaxyonglass.com, sign up for the newsletter and you can see some more stuff about what we do as well. Otherwise, Emily, I guess I'll catch you in a week or so's time. I don't know. I'm going to be taking a little bit of a holiday next week, so maybe two weeks' time. Uh, I'm going to see if I could get my way down to Wales and try to get out of the rain clouds. (laughs) Said no one (laughs) ever in going to Wales. I went to Wales once. And it was sunny and warm for four days. So there you go. You, you got the four days then, because I don't know <laughs> that, that that ever happens. So we'll be back again in a couple of weeks' time for another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. Until then, Emily, see you later. See you later. Bye, everybody. Bye.